Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, I also want to say welcome to the chapel. And if we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the Chapel Segan site pastor. And so good to be with you. So good to be back with you. I missed you guys last week. I was on vacation with my family out in Florida getting to celebrate Thanksgiving and uh, really great being with them. And I'm grateful that our lead pastor, Kevin, got to be here with you guys. So I want to say thank you to Kevin. As, as Kevin, as our lead pastor and our elder board leads me and leads our church, I just love when he gets the opportunity to come out here so that for you guys that he doesn't get to rub shoulders with as often since he preaches out at LSU, it's always great for him to to be able to be here. And I got to listen to his message on the way home. And I know you guys were blessed uh, by having him here. But like Abram said, we have entered into the Christmas season. It's going to be a really great December around here at the chapel. So Merry Christmas. But if you've been with us, we have been in a series in the book of Genesis, looking in the beginning in chapters 1 through 11, exploring the foundational worldview pieces that God has for us there in the very beginning. We're looking at the things that we need to understand about ourselves and about the world and about God and about sin so that we can have the right lenses to look at everything else that we're going through. And and though we've entered the Christmas season, we're not done with Genesis because there are some foundational pieces here that point us ahead to that very first Christmas. Everything that we've been looking at in Genesis so far doesn't feel all that like, all that much like Christmas, does it? We're seeing evil and and chaos. We're, We're seeing murder. We're seeing the draw of the human heart away from the things of God and towards the things of man. Everything within us and all of our desires tend to naturally go towards ourselves. Everything that we're seeing in Genesis, we still see in our own hearts. Everything that is wrong in this world, every, all of the brokenness, all of the chaos, it all finds its Genesis in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But God made a promise to the serpent who had tempted Eve in the garden. God said this, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is the promise that the rest of the Bible unpacks for us. This is a promise that is going to be repeated in a myriad of ways throughout the Old Testament and leading all the way up to Jesus. This is the promise that God will not abandon us to the misery and to the sin that we have let into this world. It is a promise that we will not forever live in that chaos and a promise that God himself will send a savior. It's a promise that will be repeated all the way through the scriptures. And it's a promise, this very promise that is the whole purpose of Christmas. It was this promise that God had made as he cursed the serpent that would be repeated 2,000 or many thousands of years later by a 
angel to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1. It says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. I think often is when we approach the Christmas season, we look at a verse like that and we say, oh good, because I've done a lot of bad things and I need those things to be washed away. And of course we know that in Jesus that is true, but I hope that what we've seen through the book of Genesis so far is that sin is way more than just a list of bad things that we have done. It is the presence in this world that has moved everything away from God and towards chaos. And on that first Christmas, when Jesus comes, it's not not just to wipe away our personal sins, but it's to defeat the enemy of sin that is in this world. And everything that we see here as we move forward in Genesis, we will see that plan unfold. So this year, we're going to do Christmas in Genesis and track that plan that started in the beginning. So let me pray for us. Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. I pray that you would remove all the distractions that we bring in, the the anxieties that we bring in, the excitements that we bring in, the thoughts and the, the feelings of being overwhelmed, the fear, the joy, everything that we are bringing in. I pray that you would remove it so that we can see Jesus. Through your word to us, would you allow us to hear from you? And if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, take it out of my mind. If there's anything you want to say that I've not thought of, would you come and speak? God, because we want to hear from you and be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we have a lot to cover today. We're going to start in the back half of chapter 9, go all the way through chapter 10, and all the way through chapter 11. We're not going to be able to look at every verse as we have been, over this series. But one of the things that we'll see and what I want us to focus on is a shift that is going to happen in the text today. After the fall and in chapters four through eight, the theme that we had seen is the theme of death, that death is reigning and nobody is able to escape it. Last week, Kevin got to unpack for you the the promise and the covenant to Noah that demonstrated the shift that God comes in and he is showing how he will interact with his people and pointing ahead again to the promise. And everything that we're going to see today is going to point us forward to the way that God is going to fulfill his promise. We're actually covering four genealogies today. We're not going to read all the names. We're not going to be able to go through all of it as we've been looking at. But right in the middle of those four genealogies is going to be a story that many of us know as the Tower of Babel. And that's where I want to spend the majority of our time. But what I want you, what I want us to focus on today is how do the movements in the text that we see point us ahead to recognize God's solution to the problem of sin that has come into the world. Everything that we will see today will move forward into that. So our outline is going to take us a little while to get to. Uh, Until we get to chapter 11, we're not going to be there. But we have some work to do to set up that story. So we're going to pick up where we left off in Genesis chapter 9 in verse 18. And it says this, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. So we're introduced again to these three sons of Noah, who will be the main characters of the back part of Noah's story. Now, one of the things that we have a constant conversation about in our culture is conversations about around race. And we tend to distribute and disunify and set peoples as they spend time together through external means, like skin color. But what we see in this text is the entire human race came from these three sons. We're going to see later how all of the languages and all of the cultures and all of the changes in those external properties began to change. That's one of the results of the Tower of Babel. But right from the beginning, we don't have a bunch of races in the world. We have one race, the human race, coming from these three sons. But then we have, I think I can call it an interesting part of Noah's story. It says this in verse 20. Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. We're going to talk about that. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father naked and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders and walked backward and covered their father's naked body. We're going to talk about that. Their faces were turned the other way so that they could not see their father naked. Now, this is the first time that wine is mentioned in the Bible. Now, the Bible never outright tells us that alcohol is something that we should completely abstain from, but it does tell us throughout that drunkenness is something that God has forbidden us to have. We see throughout the Bible that drunkenness leads to all sorts of debauchery and different and detestable things, but that's not the point of this story. We never actually see this text condemn Noah for his drunkenness or his nakedness. I think I've hit my quota on drunkenness and nakedness uh, in this sermon already, but we will uh, we'll keep going. The purpose of this little vignette is to point towards what is happening next, which is what the scripture condemns. Now, Noah's youngest son, Ham, sees his father lying naked. The language in the text is fairly vague. And some scholars have surmised some, some pretty outrageous ideas of what's going on here. Some people say there's something sexual going on. Some people even say there's something sexual going on with Noah's wife. But as we look at the text, it seems clear to me that, that what is happening is something that was really inappropriate in that culture, but it was simply that Ham saw his father naked and went and told his brothers Maybe this doesn't seem like that big of a deal to you. I mean, we, with all the images that we have in the world on social media and shows and, and movies, we've been desensitized to the sexual perversion that is around us in this world. But whatever is going on here is completely unacceptable in this culture. And it actually looks like Ham goes out to make fun of his father to his brothers but his brothers don't bite. They come in and they don't look at their father. They put a garment over their shoulders. They walk backwards. They roll it out to cover his shame. Shame and nakedness have been 
really joined together throughout the book of Genesis. Now, Noah wakes up and he, he finds out somehow, we're not told how, what had happened, and he addresses it. And if you can believe it, the words that we're going to read next are actually the first and only words that we hear from the mouth of Noah in the Bible. This main character, this hero of the faith, this is all we hear from him. And what he is about to say is an oracle. It's, it's a prophecy about what is going to happen to his children and his grandchildren and all the generations that follow. And, and here's what he said. Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves, will he be to his brothers. He also said, praise be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be the slave of Japheth. Now, what is the purpose of this oracle? This whole story seems a little surreal, especially as we're talking about Christmas. What is actually going on here? Well, remember Genesis is a book of beginnings. It's setting up what happens next. And this oracle is actually God through Noah telling us what is about to happen. It's moving us forward into God's solution to the problem of sin that mankind has brought in. It's setting the foundation of all of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent that are moving forward, the promise in Genesis 3 and the curse of Genesis 3. Now, Ham is the one who sinned, but it's Ham's youngest son, Canaan, that is actually cursed. Ham is the youngest son of Noah, and Canaan is the youngest son of Ham, and that's where the curse falls. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, you've probably heard of Canaan, or you've heard talk of the Canaanites. They are the peoples that are the constant enemies of the people of Israel. And it is the land that God has given to the people of Israel to possess. So I want to show you a map. Uh, we're going to see this, uh, this map that just kind of represents a, where these peoples would have scattered to. And I want to show you this map in lieu of chapter 10. We're not going to even go into Genesis 10 because what Genesis 10 gives us is what is known as the table of the nations. It gives us the genealogies of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. And what we begin to see is that all of the Canaanites, and you can't really see that little spot over there, but they're all the, they're all the ites, right? The, the Moabites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, the, the Hizzites, all the ites in the Bible. They're the Canaanites that we read throughout the, the, uh, the history of Israel as they go in and dispossess them. All the Canaanites came through Ham, came through Canaan, but in Ham's lineage, we also have some peoples that you may have heard of. Sodom, Gomorrah, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, the Philistines. These are all the future enemies of Israel. And what we see as we read through the Old Testament is that Canaan isn't just cursed and punished because of what Ham did. They are punished because their sins are very clearly outlined throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And most of their sins have to do with leading Israel into impurity. 
Canaan is taking the place of Cain as the cursed line. And then we see Shem, he gets blessed. We see that, that, it's, that Noah uses the personal name of God to bless Shem. This is actually where the people of Israel, this is where Abraham and ultimately Jesus come through. And then Japheth is blessed. His territory is expanded. Now the descendants of Japheth are not so much the ones that Israel interacts with throughout the Old Testament. What a lot of scholars think is that that promise to Japheth is actually a promise to the nations, a promise to the Gentiles, that the seed of the woman that comes would also be a blessing to the entire world. You can take that map away. So what we see here is God moving us forward into what he's about to do next. And like I said, we had a lot of work to get there, but all of that introduces for us the story that we're going to see here in Genesis chapter 11. In chapter 11, 1 and 2, we read this. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech, which of course we know was English. Just making sure you're still with me. There's probably some Americans that might not know why that's funny. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now, we don't know how many years have passed since the flood. We don't know how many years have passed since chapter 10, the table of the nations. But at this point in history, all of these people have been coming together and they all speak one language. The text says that they moved eastward. And as we've seen through Genesis, moving east is moving away from Eden. Moving east is a symbolization of moving away from God and moving more to following yourself. And we see them land in a place called Shinar. Now, if we looked at chapter 10, we would have seen that Shinar is actually the beginning stages of what would grow into Babylon. And Babylon is used as a symbol throughout the Bible as a people that have set themselves up against God. So right in these two verses, we see some symbolism that God is trying to throw up some red flags so that the readers would see, okay, what's about to happen is not a good thing. Verse three, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. And then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. If there's anything that we take together from our series in Genesis, I think it needs to be these verses. There is not many more verses in the Bible that so clearly point to what sin has done to this world. I will make a name for myself, lest I do what you want me to do, Lord. There is not many better definitions of sin in the Bible than these verses. And I don't know about you, but as I read those verses, I see their echoes in my own heart. 
And as I look at this world and as I look at the chaos around us, I see these echoes all around us. So what do these words really mean? What is being expressed here? Well, they declare in front of God their intention to make a name for themselves. In the biblical storyline, to name something is to have authority over it. And what they're saying is, we don't want God to name us. We don't want God to lead us. We don't want to submit ourselves to God. We have better definitions of what is true. We have better definitions of the proper meaning, the proper purpose, the things that we're supposed to spend our lives on. God, you've done great so far. We'll take it from here. We want to make a name for ourselves. And if you're taking notes, the first point on your outline is that the temptation of sin is to make a name for ourselves. That's what sin always tempts us to do, to make a name for ourselves. The sin that has invaded the world has convinced us that we have to make a name for ourselves. And every single one of us in this room feels this pull all the time. And it looks something like this general story. I think I'm supposed to be this type of person. I think everything within me and everything around me is telling me I'm supposed to be like this. And therefore, I need to be that person. I need to feel like that person. And I need to make sure everyone around me sees me as that person. So I need to do this, whatever this is in this case, to become what I think I'm supposed to be. I want to be known. I want to be liked. And so here's the path that I have to take to make that name for myself. We see it all around us. We see it in social media culture where people put their best selves out there, not their real selves, so that they can define a persona to the public of how they want people to see. And then they live and die by the likes and, and the shares and the comments. We see it in the increasing debt that our culture is taking on. Credit card debt and student loan debt have both eclipsed trillion dollars in this country. But in the pursuit of making a name for ourselves, we say, well, these are the things I have to do. These are the things I have to wear. These are the things I have to drive. This is the house I have to live in. This is the lifestyle that I have to maintain. It doesn't matter if I can afford it. I'll just put it on a credit card. We see this in the workaholism all around us. I'm a person of success and I'm going to do whatever it takes in order to establish that image. No matter what it costs, no matter what it does to my family, this is what I need to do. We see it in the culture of anxiety and depression and addiction that is all around us because we know that in and of ourselves, we're never going to be that perfect version of what we think we're supposed to be. And the stress that that causes, causes a gap. And we need to fill it with something so that we can feel something. We even see it in the stress and anxiety that's around Christmas that maybe many of us feel. My house has to look like this. My kids need to get this type of present. My in-laws need to see me 
this way. And Christmas goes from being a joyful celebration of the coming of King Jesus to a stress-induced event. All of this and so much more comes from that pull to make a name for ourselves. We long for worth. We long for value. We long for love. We long for legacy. And left to our own devices, the natural way we can see to go about that is to do it on our own. Christopher Watkin, who I've been quoting from a lot, says this, in a world that catechizes us into the dream that you can be anything you want to be, citizens are faced with the twin responsibility of first choosing what to be and then becoming what they have chosen on pain of namelessness. And even worse than that, it's not just about us accomplishing the name, the identity of the persona that we want for ourselves, but it has to succeed in the court of, of public opinion. That people have to affirm, yeah, what you have chosen is good. We live and die by the world affirming the name that we're trying to make for ourselves. I think that's what's going on here in Genesis chapter 11. People have wandered so far east of Eden, so far away from walking with God, trying to follow him, that the only thing that they're left with is, I guess I have to figure this out on my own. They're so far east, wandered so far that they can no longer just receive the image that God has given them and put themselves under his loving direction. All they have found themselves left with is to make a name for themselves. And for these people in Genesis 11, it took a complete act of disobedience to make it happen. They were commanded three times in Genesis so far. In chapter 1, verse 28, in chapter 9, verse 1, and chapter 9, verse 7, fill the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. It's clearly a priority for God to have the earth filled with his image bearers. But if you notice what the people said, they said, we're going to build this tower. Otherwise, we're going to be scattered over the face of the earth. They're saying, we're going to build this tower. We're going to make a name for ourselves. And the reason that we're doing that is we're not going to do what you said to do, God, to fill the earth. It's a complete act of disobedience. God said, fill the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth. Man said, actually, God, we've been meaning to talk to you about that. We've actually got a really great idea that I think you're going to like. We're just going to stay here. I know you said you wanted us to do something else. I know you have a plan and purpose for us, but you've been great so far. But we got it from here. And I think we've all probably had that conversation with God in our heart at one time or another. Yeah, I know what to do. God, what you said seems a little outdated. I got a pretty good plan. I'm a pretty good person. I, I've been to church. I, I, could, I could figure this thing out. Now, maybe you think you've been a Christian for a long time and, and this isn't a problem for you anymore. But what I found is even those who have been following Jesus their entire lives have the same temptation to build a tower and to make a name for themselves. Sometimes we just put a nice Christian spin on it. And I know this is true for you because I'm assuming you're not that different from me. And I know it's true for me. 
Because every single Sunday morning, my prayer in my office before I walk into this room and on the stage is, God, would you bring humility to my heart? And would you get the glory for the things that you are going to do today? Because I will tell you that my temptation is to use this platform to make a name for myself to live by the good things that come as a result and to die from the criticisms and the critiques that might come. And if anything should be immune from being a platform to make a name for yourself, it should be the preaching of God's word for God's glory. But yet that's my daily struggle. And so I have to imagine I'm not alone in this room that no matter how long we are following Jesus, this is the temptation that's going to be in our hearts. Are you tired of trying to make a name for yourself? Are you stressed out and, and anxious about constantly trying to be the right person and do the right things and have the right persona? Are you tired of trying to make a name for yourself? I, I wish I had a magic bullet for you. I wish I had a Bible verse you could memorize or a prayer you could pray to where this would no longer be a problem. But if we've learned anything through Genesis 1 through 11, we've seen the foundations of what sin is going to do in the world. This will be the constant battle for us. But that doesn't mean that we lay down and accept it. The constant daily battle for us needs to be on our knees with open hands, begging God to allow us to receive our name, to receive our identity, to receive our purpose from him. Christopher Watkin again says this, seeking to make a name for ourselves condemns us to a punishing regime of ever inadequate performance, ever more forced and filtered self-presentation and the ever provisional, ever changeable verdict of the social network on the name that we have made for ourselves. But how much sweeter, more peace bringing, more liberating is it to receive a name from God, child, image, and beloved. Jesus said it this way in John chapter one, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, meaning you're not just born into this because of your country or your language or your family or your skin color or your ethnicity or anything like that. You're not naturally born into it. Not of human decision. This is not something where we just say, hey, I'm just going to make this happen and come in and do all the right things and have the right identity nor of a husband's will, meaning no one can just decide this for you. Parents don't just make this happen on their kids. Pastors don't just make this happen on a congregation. Sunday school teachers don't just make this happen in a group of kids sitting in front of them, but born of God. It comes from him. The identity that he has given us and that Jesus died to secure the constant battle in prayer for us as individuals and as families and as a church is to receive our name, to receive our identity from God himself, to believe that we are who he says we are. And so the next point on your outline is that the offer of God 
is to receive our identity from him. That's what God offers in the gospel. I could have said name there instead of identity, but I want you to be able to look back on your notes in months at a time and be like, what name did God give me? But that's what we're talking about here. The naming God gives us is the image of God, the identity and the purpose and the mission that we have. But these people who are building the tower, they had nothing left. They had wandered too far east. They found themselves making a name for themselves. And and so they built and built and built. They were going to make a tower with its tops in the heavens and, and listen to the braggadocious spirit that they have. I can see them being like, God, God, come here. Look, look at how big the tower is. Isn't this so big? Are we finally up at the heavens or are we, look at it, it's so great. And I think the next verse is hilarious. Verse five, but the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. Of course, God didn't need to come down and see. He could see any, everything. But this is poet, poetic emphasis to say, yeah, your tower is puny. The name that you're building for yourself is pitiful. What you're trying to accomplish is not what your soul is actually looking for. It's inadequate. And ultimately, that's the same thing happening in our hearts and around us when we try to make a name for ourselves. God looks at it and says, guys, that's a puny attempt. I sent my son to die for you to secure the redemption that will bring about the joy-filled life, the image of God, a purpose for me. You don't have to labor for it anymore, but that tower you're trying to build, that name you're trying to create, it's pitiful compared to what I've offered. Verse six, the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so that it will not understand one another. Now it almost sounds like God is afraid of the power of a unified humanity in the language that is used here, but that's not what's going on. What we see from God here is actually an incredible amount of love and mercy. There's actually three simultaneous acts of mercy going on in this verse. The first is an act of mercy to save them from themselves. God is saying, your tower and your name is so puny. It's so pitiful. If you keep going after this, you're actually going to cause harm on yourself. If you receive what I've given you, it's so much better, but you won't just be missing out, but you will do harm to yourself. So God's scattering of the peoples is actually an act of mercy, saving them from the harm they've inflict on themselves. But the second is that it's an act of mercy to save them from God because God had every right to destroy them. This is direct disobedience. And God's not against towers or cities or technology or progress or unity. He's against sin. So instead of destroying the people, God, in an act of mercy, scatters them. And the third act of mercy is actually mercy with a global scope. 
Because God has said, I want the earth filled. I want the earth filled. And the purpose of that is he wanted his image all over the world so that more and more people could know him, could worship him, could see the image of God. But sin had tarnished that. They weren't scattering. So God said, I'll take care of it. I will scatter you. And it's an act of mercy so that millions and millions of people throughout the next thousands and thousands of years could know God because God was never about just one family or one people or one race. He's a global God that longs for some from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to know him. And gathering together under one language, disobeying God was not the way that that mission was going to be fulfilled. Last point on our outline is that the purpose of God is that the world would know him. Verse eight, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel because there the Lord confused their language, the whole language of the whole world. From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Now, Babel means confusion. And the way I picture this happening is all of a sudden you can't understand the guy next to you. So you just start yelling words. And then when you hear people who are like, oh, you understand me? Let's be friends. And then they become a tribe and they scatter and they go across the whole earth. God said, fill the earth, fill the earth, fill the earth. Man said, actually, better idea. We're going to stay here. God said, that's not how this works. I had a college pastor that used to say, God's will will be accomplished either with you or on top of you. But God's will will be done. But now we're left with a problem. God's plan that he unpacked for us in Genesis 1 through 11 is accomplished. The the earth is filled, but now people can't understand each other. How are they going to perpetuate the image of God? How are they going to talk to each other? How are they going to share his glory and goodness? How are the people going to hear about him? The world is filled, but how's it going to be blessed? The image of God is tarnished because of sin. How's it going to be fixed? Well, those questions are why we have the rest of the Bible. The rest of the Bible is the story of God unpacking the answer to those questions. And he does it through the family that comes from one man. And his name was Abraham. He came from the line of Noah through the line of Shem. And eventually, 2,000 years later, would come to Jesus. The rest of chapter 11 has two genealogies, the genealogy that gets us from Noah to Abraham and then a genealogy of Abraham's family because God has now set the stage that we would recognize his solution to the problem of sin. And as we keep moving forward towards Christmas, we're going to look at that plan Because on that first Christmas morning, that long-expected baby, that baby that would crush the head of the serpent, that baby who would become king and savior, had been being prepared for for 2,000 years from the time of Abraham. And the people were waiting for him. That baby would be the catalyst for the redemption of the human race. And even though the languages have been confused and the world can't understand each other, God still made a promise. 
He said that there would be one day, one who would come and crush the head of the serpent. And in his grace, he gives us a vision of the end through the apostle John who saw the throne room. And this is what we read. In chapter seven of Revelation, after this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands and they were crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's the end of the story. And the promise came to us in the beginning. Everything in between is God bringing about the redemption of the human race. And as we continue to go through December and continue to go through Christmas, we're going to look at that plan. We're going to see that baby, not just as one that will come to make our lives better or to take away our individual sin, but one that will come to bring redemption to the world, to crush the head of the serpent, to destroy the enemy of sin, and to bring about the abundant life for those from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Let me pray for us. God, we are so grateful for Jesus because none of this that we see in Genesis and that we see throughout the rest of the scriptures could we accomplish on our own. So I pray that in these next moments as we come to the table to enjoy communion together, that you would give us grace to fix our eyes on Jesus. Would you lift our eyes off of ourselves and the name that we want to try to make for ourselves? And would you allow us today to have our eyes fixed on Jesus and be changed? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.